0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today needs no introduction, so I won't give him one. This is Steven Pinker, and he has a new book called Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, and Why It Matters. We talk about what rationality is. We talk about rationality's PR problem. We discuss whether rationality has increased or decreased over time. We talk about how to apply reason to everyday life choices. We discuss the behavioral economics revolution and cognitive biases. We talk about what it means to be intellectually humble. We talk about why people love conspiracy theories. We talk about when it's okay to be irrational. We talk about the role reason has played in the enormous progress humanity has made since the dawn of civilization. And much more. So without further ado, Steven Pinker. All right, Steven Pinker. Thank you so much for coming on my show again. Thanks for having me, Coleman. So you need no introduction on this podcast. So I won't ask you to give one. We'll get right into your new book. Your book is all about rationality. So I guess the the first basic question is: what is rationality and why Write a book about it at this moment?
1: I define it as the use of knowledge to attain a goal. That means that uh, what is or isn't rational always has to be defined with respect to the goal that the agent is seeking. Mm -hmm. But as long as there is brain power calculation applied to uh, achieving the goal, and it can be different, diverse means of attaining it, then we're apt to call it rationality. Uh, It also means that there isn't a single standard of rationality because there are different normative models that is different mathematical and logical tools depending on what you're deploying your rationality for. Why now? Well the there are some aspects of rationality that I like to think are uh, eternal. What are the benchmarks of rationality that, that is given a goal such as, oh, inferring true propositions from other true propositions, calculating a probability, calibrating your degree of uh, credence in a hypothesis according to the strength of uh, evidence, distinguishing correlation from causation. There are ways of doing these, and I think they should be part of every educated person's cognitive toolkit. They're like reading and and writing, that is skills that are necessary for understanding pretty much everything else. But uh, though I think they ought to be part of the school curriculum starting from uh, a very early age, I didn't know of any book that explained the, uh, the, the, the most important ones between two covers. And I thought, uh, first, I offered it as a course, then I turned it into a book of where, where would you find the rudiments of game theory and logic and statistical decision theory and Bayesian reasoning all in one place? And in, in a way that, at least I hope, is comprehensible to any um, open-minded, intelligent person. But of course, there is another reason why this book uh, might be seen to be timely. And this became clear as soon as I told people that I was teaching a course then writing a book on rationality, and namely the frequently asked question, well, that's a really interesting topic. Can you explain why humanity appears to be losing its mind? Why do we seem to be flooded with, with fake news and conspiracy theories and medical quackery and paranormal woo-woo and post-truth uh, uh, rhetoric? Uh, what's going on with our species today? And that, that makes it especially timely.
0: So a big theme of this book and something I've thought a lot about in my life is the problem of rationality having a, a kind of stench on it in the culture, having a, having a PR problem. And there are various aspects to this, but one is, I think, the misimpression that rationality is... It's basically just plugging a problem or a question into a kind of calculator, whether that's a rational person's brain or a robot or a Spock type character, and just it spitting out the one true answer to the problem, which is inevitably some cold, lifeless kind of of answer. And that's what rationality is. I think one thing your book, one realization I come away with from your book, is that reason is a pretty open and creative space in many ways. It's a, a one thing you talk about is the the recursive nature of rationality, like uh, you know, l- l- just like with language, you can embed thoughts within other thoughts and assess thoughts with meta thoughts. Reason is is much the same way. So can you talk a little bit about the the, the PR problem that rationality has and you know, what what people think it is and what it actually is?
1: I, I'm so glad you brought up those two points because they really do lie at the heart of any explanation and defense of rationality. So yeah, the first one is that there is this PR problem. Rationality is is not cool. People seem to think it requires being you no, know, dour and joyless. And, and I, I do get questions like, gee, if, if we're supposed to be rational, does that mean I can't enjoy a sunset or fall in love or, or you know, go dancing, and listen to music? No, of course not. Uh, rationality is the uh, ability to attain a goal. And the state of being rational does not tell you what that goal is. Those goals are built into our emotional, motivational makeup. And uh, in fact, it would be highly irrational to deprive yourself of a source of pleasure that doesn't harm anyone else, like loving your children, like uh, like lis- listening to music, like enjoying uh, beauty, like having a sense of awe and wonder. Rationality can deepen those pursuits. They can uh, maximize the both the short-term pleasure and the long-term satisfaction. It can adjudicate among conflicts of goals when two people want goals that can't be realized at the same time. We, we more or less call that morality or, or an ethics. It can adjudicate between goals that uh, are satisfied at different times, pleasure now versus long term satisfaction over the long run, uh, but certainly does not rule out pleasure, joy, wonder, awe, and so on. Now, the other point that I'm so glad you, you raised the recursive nature of rationality, because it's a, a bit of a subtle point, but I mean, I, I think not once it's explained, which is that rationality can always. Uh, hop up a level and look down upon instances of itself, and that is a, an important counter to the criticism. Well, uh, you know, didn't didn't the Soviet Union think that it was a, uh, applying a, a rational plan for a society? And look what happened there. They had the Gulag and the Holodomor and the Iron Curtain and so on. So rationality isn't so great. But of course, the, the thing is that in making that argument, you are applying rationality to the so-called rationality of, for example, the Soviet Union, and you can always do that. The fact that someone claims to be rational doesn't mean that they are rational, and it must be rationality that allows us to say that some claim to rationality, in fact, isn't. And a, 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 an important point, is a, kind of a philosophical point, uh, is that as soon as you ask for or debate, or consider reasons for anything, you're already committed to rationality. You're not bribing someone, you're not, you're not threatening them, it's not like a, you know a hostage video and you gotta say what you want or else you'll be hurt, or, or, or someone being bribed to say something. As soon as you're saying why, what's the reason, can you defend, it's too late to evaluate the importance of reason. Uh, just by showing up, you've already conceded that point. And that's always because it is reason that we use to examine the value of particular instances of reason.
0: So I guess my next question, I'll give a little context for this question. I, um, as probably most of my listeners know by now, I initially out of high school, I, I went to music school. I was at Juilliard for a little while before switching over to majoring in philosophy. And in general, throughout my adult and teenage life, I've been pretty much as steeped in the world of music as I have been in the world of writing and and philosophy and in the world of the arts and you cite some, some funny quotes from, from Prince and other artists where there is a sort of motto of let go of your reason, just enjoy this moment right now. Don't be rational. Don't make sense. And that feels liberating to many people. Many people feel that that really embodies how they want to live at at least at certain moments. And and I, I I guess I'm, I'm curious whether, you know, I wouldn't define that as a dominant strain of the culture necessarily. It it is in certain subcultures, but I'm curious in the culture in general, in America, the Western world and, and the world, do you think reason is is declining at all? So when people come to you and they say, "What's going on in the world? People are so irrational." Do you have a, a Pinker-like response to give them that actually we're we are becoming more rational, or do you actually think there is there's sort of a, a backslide in how much our culture values reason relative to some earlier era?
1: Yeah, a couple of things. So certainly, you know, there's nothing irrational about going crazy, you know, on the dance floor when you're having fun, you know, as long as you don't think that that is a way to, say, solve policy problems or social problems. There was a, a book in the 1960s, I think it was by Abby Hoffman, called Revolution for the Hell of It. And there was a, an idea that uh, the society's problems this is an idea from, for, you know, from, from my generation, before my generation, for older, older uh, kids, that you know we ought to be spontaneous, that there's just too much uh, policy wonkery coming out of the think tanks. So I think that's a mistake. But in terms of carving out times and places in which you are uninhibited uh, there, there's no rational reason not to and in fact you know here we are discussing it we're, we're, we're saying that uh you know why not let loose on a on a Saturday night or you know, in any other circumstance in which you are neither harming your future self nor harming someone else and that's why rationality always does come into the picture even when you're talking about going crazy not making sense in in in, in circumscribed circumstances you know and as long as you don't uh, apply, just you know, mob rule the, the emotions of the crowd in order to accomplish something uh, politically. Now, th- it is a, a, uh, a difficult question to ask how, whether we're getting more rational or not, because unlike some of the other measures of well-being that I have plotted over time in my previous books, Better Angels of Our Nature had uh, 75 graphs on various measures of violence over the course of history. The uh, Enlightenment Now expanded that to measures of well-being, like famine and uh, infant mortality and, and poverty and illiteracy. But for rationality, it's, um, you know, we don't have a, a constant yardstick that goes back in time. So it, it's a little harder to answer the question. So here are a couple things that we can say. You know, certainly at the, at the top end, and acknowledging that there's a, a lot of rationality inequality uh, at the top end, we've never been more rational. We've got you know, our science, our engineering, our technology is uh, just growing exponentially. We have mRNA vaccines. We've got genome sequencing. We have uh, space probes. Uh, we have the application of more rational methods to uh, domains of human life that formerly were just a matter of punches and authority and uh, uh, conventional wisdom and myth and rumor like uh, evidence-based medicine. So instead of your doctor's intuition, you have uh, randomized controlled trials to see what works and what doesn't, often with some, some uh, uh, eye-opening surprises. We've got evidence-based policing that helped drive down the American crime rate starting in the 1990s by concentrating the police on the uh, zones that have the, the highest levels of crime. We have evidence-based sports, Moneyball, Uh, as the the title of the book by Michael Lewis uh, put it, where teams that aren't the richest in the league can outplay those who are far wealthier by applying uh, data and statistics, Uh, an application of sabermetrics that is the uh, the quantitative analysis of, of sports, in particular baseball. Anyway, in domain after domain, there are ways in which we become more rational. At the other end of the scale, though, there there is no shortage of conspiracy theories and, and, and medical quackery and, and paranormal uh, beliefs, crystal healing power, astrology. It's not that they've gotten worse. They might have, but they've always been with us. And that at least gives us a hint that we shouldn't make the common error of saying, gee, there's a lot of stuff around uh, that I don't like, therefore it's getting worse. And I have, I have seen that fallacy over and over again when it comes to measures of violence and well-being. There's uh, pollution, therefore pollution's gotten worse. There's war, therefore war's gotten worse. People confuse a single point in time, namely now, with a worsening trend when often, the uh, even though some problem or blight has not gone to zero, it, uh, it's, it used to be worse. In the case of irrationality, this is in the case of kind of woo-woo or spooky irrationality, belief in haunted houses, in telepathy. Uh, as best I can tell, there's been virtually no change in the last 50 years uh, in beliefs such as astrology, precognition, being able to, to tell, tell the future, omens. What, there are ups and downs when, when there's a uh, burst of publicity because of some uh, you know, special on the History Channel, then, then it goes up and then it kind of goes back down again. But it, it looks pretty flat, which, is, which I actually find kind of depressing but, uh, but, but that's what the data suggests. You know, on the other hand, if you look at even longer periods, probably about a third of Americans believe in ghosts today. I, I suspect if you went back uh, 150 years or 200 years, it would be closer to you know, 100%. And likewise, even in, in our political discourse, even though we tear our hair out at the 30,000 lies that Donald Trump told during his presidency, including some uh, outlandish, indeed dangerous conspiracy theories. Not a single one of them involved anything paranormal. Involved, you know, no omens, no uh, ESP. I mean, it, it was deplorable stuff. It's a you know, at least some concession to rationality that we're kind of out of that space in uh, elite decision-making circles. So it's it's a mixed picture. Certainly, the the things that we that really strike us now as hair-raising. The conspiracy theories have always been with us and that, and have been quite dangerous in the past, like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the, uh, the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory cooked up by the Tsarist secret police. The uh, fake news has uh, is probably as old as human language and, uh, and has, uh, again, led to some pretty big catastrophes, like the, the explosion of the, the Maine in the 1890s, which led to the Spanish-American War, and the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which led to the escalation of the war in Vietnam even weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and we know the consequences, or the the rumor that Saddam Hussein had something to do with 9-11. All of those are fake news. We've had supermarket tabloids with sightings of Elvis in convenience stores and two-headed babies. We've had urban legends about the the hippie who put the baby in the microwave and the, uh, the, 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 the Doberman who coughed up a human hand. We've had paranormal beliefs for as long as it's been religion, kind of what we define as religion. The, the miracles in scriptures are, are nothing but, but paranormal fake news. Uh, so it, it's, uh, I don't think we can give a single answer just because there are more than 7 billion of us and we vary a lot in our degree of rationality.
0: Yeah. So uh, I want to get back to conspiracy theories in, in one moment, but I want to circle back to this question of how you can use rationality to deal with personal trade-offs in your life and when to prioritize future enjoyment over present enjoyment. And to, to me, because this is immediately applicable to, to everyone's lives, and it's an area where people don't tend to think of themselves as reasoning in, in the same way that you would be reasoning in a philosophy classroom or in a, in, in a logic classroom. But just like, you know, the, the decision, the simple decision to go out on a Friday night and drink with friends, right? A decision as simple as that involves competing trade-offs that can be looked at rationally and and should be. Like one is, I'm okay, I'm going to be maybe a little hungover, a little tired the next day. But there is that against the trade-off of entering a space where you're liable to have more interesting, more fun conversations and, and be more open to forming new connections with people that can then survive into sobriety. Right? Like that, that's something. And and then you just, you're you're at a point where you have to judge whether to do that once a week, once a month, five days a week. And you're just, and it's, it's even more complicated than that because you, it's not just that there's one thing trading off against another thing. It's there could be 10 things trading off against each other. And you don't only apply this to your life, right? This is how policy wonks judge policies at the, at the, and that's an area where we would be more inclined to say, okay, this economist is reasoning about the trade-off between increasing the minimum wage and, and increasing unemployment say, but, you know, we don't tend to think of, ourselves as reasoning about our own choices and, and lifestyles. And I think that's one reason why reason has some of the bad PR it has is because we don't realize that, that reason can be the gateway into, just like it could be the gateway into partying less, it could be the gateway into having a little more fun. If you're judging the trade-offs in, in the wrong direction. And I, I say all that just to convey and I think it's a it's a major obstacle to to your project is is just the sense people have that reason is not for me. It's like it's it's for the academics. It's for the people, you know, who, who are writing books and writing studies. It's not for just, you know, the average guy or girl on the street living his or her life. And it's like you're you're already doing it. And you know, you, you can't choose not to do it. And doing more of it and doing it better, it's not only compatible with having more fun and deep enjoyment out of life, it's necessary to that project. So, anyway, that's just uh, sort of the reaction I had reading your book. I, I hope others do too.
1: Yeah. Once again, you've raised a number of, of uh, I think, really deep points. One of them is that we're all capable of rationality. And I, I take pains to avoid. You know the, the impression that you one can get in reading the literature on human judgment and decision making that humans are a bunch of of, of boobs we are are uh, saddled with these biases and fallacies. It's because we are just cavemen out of time. We have quick reactions so that we don't get eaten by leopards, and with the implication that it's only you know we psychologists, philosophers, statisticians that can make a claim to rationality. And I I try to dispatch that. Uh, idea early in the book with an extended discussion of the San people of the Kalahari Desert in, in South Africa and, and uh, Botswana, formerly called the, the, uh, the Bushmen, uh, and how cerebral they are in hunting, how they have to engage in quite sophisticated reasoning in inferring what animal left behind which tracks and where, they, uh, where the animal is and what condition it's in, its uh, sex, its age, all of which they do by a kind of scientific reasoning. Uh, at least I, I, I consider it to be deserving of that uh, term based on the work of Lewis Liebenberg, who's uh, lived with them for, for um, many decades. Uh, and um, you know, and likewise, I, when I reiterate some of the classic fallacies that anyone who's taken behavioral economics or cognitive psychology knows about, the you know, base rate neglect, the gambler's fallacy, I try to not just say, well, uh, you know, aren't, aren't we a stupid species? But rather, here is why that mode of thinking actually is pretty useful in pretty narrow, circumscribed circumstances. It just can't scale, it can't generalize. And we're kind of trapping people into making these errors by hitting them with some circumstances, unlike one in which that mode of reasoning ordinarily works pretty well. And I distinguish between ecological rationality and formal rationality. Uh, it's a distinction I borrowed from Lita Cosmides and John Tooby and Gerd Gigerenzer. And it uh, refers to the d- distinction between having the ability to reason that's kind of baked together with your subject matter knowledge. And it's very different from the kind of academic reasoning that we're taught to do in school, where you are given very general abstract rules with variables, you know, P and Q and A and B. And, and th- those are extremely useful. That's why we have education. It's not that people shouldn't know them. But in everyday life, they often are inapplicable. And this becomes clear when you, say, speak to people from a a non-literate, non-educated culture, uh, or for that matter, sometimes our our, our own students. And you realize there is a kind of rationality to what they say, even though it doesn't fit with the application of formal rules. Just let me just give you an example. This comes from the work of the great Russian psychologist, uh, Luria who interviewed uh, Russian peasants. He asked them questions, he gave them problems like this. Uh, All uh, animals in Siberia are white, are the bears white? And the the, the peasant says, well, how should I know? I've never been to Siberia. And he said, well, I just said, all animals are white. He says, well, that's not the kind of thing that you can uh, figure out just by words. you got to see them. So he's making a distinction between what philosophers call Analytic versus synthetic, or uh, theoretical versus empirical knowledge. Mainly, there's some things you can't deduce. They're not like Pythagorean theorem. You got to, you have to be an empiricist. You got to look. But that would be an incorrect answer in a logic puzzle in one of our in in our schools because we we learn the habit of forgetting everything we know and concentrating only on the premises of the problem and deducing its implications. Again, that's a very powerful thing to learn. But people who don't. Do that are not they're not foolish they're not stupid they're just reasoning in a, a different way which one can call ecological rationality I think the Ulrich Neisser is probably the first one to uh, come up with the term I just I can't um, avoid mentioning one other example There's been a huge amount of discussion of the uh, the trolley problem in moral philosophy The driver of a trolley has had a heart attack and keeled over the trolley is uh, careening down the tracks It's about to a plow into five workers who can't see it approaching but you're at a switch and you can divert it into a sidetrack where it'll only kill one worker is it morally permissible to divert the trolley killing one instead of killing five now sometimes students hear this problem and they say well why don't you just shout hey there's a trolley <laughs> coming get out of the way now you know that that's uh, in some ways you know not a legitimate answer to that problem considered as a thought experiment to clarify our intuitions but of course, in real life, that's exactly what you should do. So this is uh, uh, another illustration of the difference between ecological and, and uh, formal rationality and a, one of the reasons not to bite off our species. Okay, that's a, a big digression. But getting back to your uh, the examples that you gave, say about deciding when and how much to let loose, uh, to trade off um, sometimes very difficult, almost incommensurable values, there's a chapter in the book on rational choice theory or expected utility theory on given that you can kind of weigh things at all prefer one thing to another and that's a big if but if you can there is a kind of a beautiful mathematical body of knowledge from John von Neumann that tells you how you ought to do that as long as you can make choices at all in the case of say getting drunk now versus and then having a hangover tomorrow you know you can weigh off how much Pleasure? Do I get from being drunk versus how much discomfort do I have from being uh, hungover? And but on top of that, there is the time factor, namely, how do I compare pleasure now versus pleasure a day from now, a week from now, a year from now, ten years from now? And there isn't—it uh, it is a trade-off that we we, in fact, all animals, all, all rational agents, have to face. And the answer isn't, uh, "Oh, you shouldn't care about time; you, you shouldn't sacrifice." your future self, your present self, there's a body of research from economics, behavioral ecology called discounting the future on what is the optimal or rational way to do it. And the reason that you you really should favor the present to some extent over the future is, you know, you might be hit, hit by a bus tomorrow, in which case any deferral of pleasure now for the future would have gone to waste. Or you might have be planning for some future event and, you know, the best made plans of mice and men go off to they, uh You might have miscalculated. Maybe you're putting away fund, funds for retirement and the retirement fund you know, goes bankrupt. So there is a way that one ought to discount the future. And of course, it doesn't make sense to scrimp and save all your life for a you know, fantastic birthday bash when you turn 80. You know that, that really is not, not rational. You really should consume enjoy as you live your life. The question is how much? And there is some reason to think that people tend to discount the future too steeply. That is, even though you really ought to favor the present over the future, to some extent, people do it too much. They, they act as if they're going to die. In a couple of years, and you know, probably our ancestors, you know, had a high chance of dying within a couple of years. We can be expected to live into our eighties, but we're kind of stuck with the time trade-offs that aren't applicable to a more predictable and longer-lived uh, society. But in a di- and 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 that is a matter of rationality, and it's, it's it is it is a kind of ecological rationality because our folk wisdom already has some. Bits of advice of, of common wisdom that acknowledges that we are apt to overvalue the present compared to the future. Like advice, like say for a rainy day, count to ten before you uh, explode. Control your anger. You know, a little more rudely, the the male to male advisory for discretion in sexual matters. Keep your pecker in your pocket. Uh, there's a whole set of sayings of you know don't 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 blow it now. Think about the future. Think twice. Hold your horses. Um, so that's already in our our, our value, our belief system. And it is a part of rationality that, as you point out, we already uh, stick to. In addition, of course, there's the trade-off between what's good for me and what's good for someone else. So in, in terms of the costs of getting drunk, you, know, you really ought to factor in the risks to others from driving drunk uh, or, or for getting into fights. And so it isn't just a matter of you. And as soon as you realize that me, you, it kind of makes no difference, rationally speaking. We're just, we're all people we all experience pain and pleasure. You've got to weight other people's well-being in your decisions in order that you can insist that they weight yours in their decisions. And that means that there are a number of things that feel good in the moment that you shouldn't do at the cost of harming others with the, the, the risk that they'll harm you.
0: Yeah. So I want to circle back to the points you were making about the work of, of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky and I think probably most people listening are, are by now familiar with the laundry list of fallacies that and biases that the human brain is, is subject to. And I, I just want to sort of re- reiterate the point you're making here, which is, is a very interesting one. And it, it's that many of the ways in which we can shown to be irrational, you know, these word problems given to us, you know, the sunk cost fallacy, you know, for instance, is a, is a common one, all of these kinds of fallacies. Sometimes they the, the source of our mistake is, is not that we're stupid. It's actually that we're smart in, in a, our minds have made us smart in a, by using shortcuts that are highly efficient in many practical scenarios but a clever researcher can find what that shortcut you know the corner that that shortcut is skirting around and drill down on that corner in a way that reveals the the trade-off of that shortcut and and that really reframes the whole cognitive bias literature or the whole behavioral economic literature it, it, the the lesson to take turns from wow, look how poorly evolved we are to reason effectively in the modern world, to look how really ingenious our brains are at solving many practical problems that can be sort of foiled in, in narrow and in, in relatively narrow scenarios, some of which matter to, some of which are very important to realize, but the lesson is not that we're irrational fundamentally. It's actually, in some sense, the opposite. It's that the ways in which we're rational are deep and highly useful in the real world, but can be exploited in experiments. Is that right? I, I
1: think that's right. And it, and it is a point that, that um, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman themselves made now and again, to, to their mm. credit. Although often that literature is kind of Explained or or passed down as just uh, a number of ways you can poke fun at our species or at at the ordinary JLub who can get caught in all of these fallacies. And you're right, first of all, that these are, many of them are ways of reasoning that depend on certain assumptions and that work serviceably well when those assumptions are satisfied, but they can be kind of caught out if you cleverly change the the problem so that those assumptions don't hold. And, And there are some times in which the problems, You might have to even give the problem a second thought because sometimes human intuition might even be more rational than the psychologist who's trying to catch us in illusions. I'll I'll give you an example. Here's a a typical or a famous kind of fallacy. If I say that uh, uh, Amanda is very sensitive, has a highly refined aesthetic sense, she loves poetry, she wrote a sonnet for her boyfriend for his birthday, she uh, has traveled to Italy. Uh, what's more likely that she is a art history major or a psychology major? Everyone says, oh, an art history major, obviously. Now, there are probably a hundred psychology majors for every art history major. So no matter how much she fits the stereotype of an art history major, just the raw base rates, the the, the law of averages, the luck of the draw would say she's probably more, more likely to be a psychology major. So that's a a, a fallacy sometimes called base rate neglect. That is, people reason by stereotype. Trisky and Kahneman called it the representativeness heuristic, rather than by Bayes rule, which says you always start with the base rate. That is, what's the prevalence in the population? So you can say, oh ha, you know, people uh, fall, fall for this fallacy, they can't apply Bayes rule. But th- there is a twist, which is that the Bayesian logic in the in terms of starting with the base rate only applies if. The person was picked at random from the population. That is, I've chosen Amanda at random from the, the entire student body, with its hundred times as many psychology students, uh, majors as art history majors. But a person, if you don't tell people that, or if you don't emphasize it, then the person figuring out might think, well, why am I hearing all about her, you know, her, 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 her travel tastes and her, you know what she gave her boyfriend? Surely uh, an intelligent. Conversational partner is telling me that for a reason, namely, she wasn't picked at random. They, uh, the the only reason we're getting that character description is for me to connect the dots, read between the lines, which is, of course, highly intelligent, highly rational in ordinary conversation. You know, that's the reason why it's so infuriating to talk to a chatbot on a helpline because it takes you so literally and, and doesn't read between the lines. We do read between the lines. We assume that someone is presenting us information. For a sensible purpose, such as I'm telling you about uh, about Amanda, because that is diagnostic information about the kind of person that she is, and so the Bayesian base rate actually doesn't apply if she's selected at, at random. And indeed, follow-up studies, some done by Trisky and Condon themselves, but for, but, but uh, uh, pursued further by Gigerenzer, shows that if you really rub people's faces in in how random the selection process is, that is, if you pick Amanda's uh, description out of a jar with a bunch of um, student descriptions, then people don't fall for the fallacy anymore. So that that would be an example of how people are not as foolish. And as you say, some of our demonstrations are not exactly fair to the ordinary uh, human Joe or Jill.
0: Yeah. I've even thought at times that the the hot hand fallacy or or the gambler's fallacy is um, maybe not quite so much a fallacy as it seems and that this is just the, uh, the idea is the hot hand fallacy is usually described as the false belief that say if a, if a basketball player just made his last shot that he is more likely to make the next shot because he has a hot hand when in reality it's whatever his field goal percentage is, that's, you know, that's going to be the same on the next throw. And I I can see how that's, that could be narrowly true if defined as just based on whether he made the last shot, but, you know, intuitively as, as someone who plays sports and basketball and also other skills like music and chess, just like intuitively your level of skill actually with certain skills can vary quite dramatically from day to day. Even as a speaker, I notice some days I'm just, the, the, I'm mellifluous. The words just come out. Oh, and ten, other, ten, other
1: tell, tell me about it. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes.
0: And you can sort of understand, you can understand certain elements. Like if I tend to sleep more, I tend to be better, but certain aspects of, of it just remain mysterious, I think forever. And so, so the intuition that if someone ha- is having a good day on the team, that you give them the ball is not, you know, that it's actually deeply rational for, for many kinds of skills, if not, if not most kinds of skills. And, and it's only a fallacy to the extent that your likelihood of success is, is deeply random and, and doesn't follow any kind of daily swing or, or, or pattern. So I, I've, I've often thought that that was a fallacy that was uh, overplayed a little bit.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought it up because in, in the book, I talk about the hot hand fallacy fallacy, nice. which is that there is no hot hand and turns out there is a hot hand. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so there there was the kind of analogy of the gambler's fallacy, which is right. that if a roulette wheel, say, lands on red six times in a row, people think it's due for a black. Now there uh, and what you Engaged in in talking about the fact that yeah we have our you know our our ups we have our downs we have uh, you know good days we have bad days and you know don't I know there sometimes when I do an interview and afterwards I think oh god I was really inarticulate that day and other other times it just seems to flow and and that it would be no surprise if that happened to basketball players as as you noted and that makes it different in terms of just your understanding of the underlying causal model compared to the roulette wheel where it would be a shock if uh, if the gambler's fallacy was not a fallacy because the roulette wheel doesn't have a memory and it doesn't it's not as if the roulette wheel has a desire to appear fair like oh I've landed you know on, on red six times in a row I better start give coughing up some blacks otherwise I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll violate the law of averages and I, I can't do that I'm a roulette wheel so we know that that doesn't, we know that it doesn't happen with roulette wheels and so with the, that's how we know that the gambler's fallacy has pretty much got to be a fallacy. If it wasn't a fallacy, we'd say that the roulette wheel must have been fixed. And as Ferske and Kahneman point out, in the, the gambler's fallacy and similar fallacies with coin flips kind of come from a misunderstanding of randomness and, and of the so-called law of averages, more accurately than the law of large numbers, uh, which is that a, as the size of a sample increases, it comes, its parameters come to resemble the ones of the population from which it was drawn. But the reason that happens isn't because of a process of compensation. That is, if, you, if the samples start to veer too much in one direction, there's a force that pulls them you know, back towards the middle. That's not how it works. It's a process of dilution. Namely, if it veers too much in one direction, which it inevitably will because a random walk does tend to veer in, in a certain direction, then more and more stuff will kind of you know, drown it out, will dilute it, and, and uh, it'll tend to regress toward the average. However, as you note, the underlying causal model for basketball players isn't like that. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we are not roulette wheels physically. We, our physical state does get carried over from moment to moment. So there it's completely an empirical question whether basketball players are roulette wheels. Although it's kind of the gambler's fallacy in reverse, because you're more likely to make a shot rather than more likely to do the opposite, as in the case of the roulette wheel. But it's the same logic. And so that's one of the reasons why the claim by Tom Gilovich and Amos Tversky that there is no hot hand, namely that basketball players really are roulette wheels, was so shocking to sports fans and to you know to kind of common sense. It turns out that Tversky and Gilovich probably did the statistics wrong. That by identifying streaks of hits or misses after the fact, they're kind of biasing the data against a continuation of the streak because. Now, let's say you you, you make a shot, 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 five uh, successful attempts in a row. Well, it's almost by definition that the next one is going to be a uh, miss, because if the next one was a hit, you could have called it a streak of of six shots instead of five shots. Uh, And therefore, your delineation of the data is in part biased by whether there was a, a flip or not. So it's a subtle statistical point. Uh, it would have to be for someone as brilliant as Tversky to have missed it. Um, but it's it's one that throws off the calculations. And it, so it turns out that common sense, conventional wisdom, you know, sports fans uh, understanding turns out to be right. And the uh, kind of the gotcha gang, the, the ones trying to show how foolish and, and misled sports fans were turned out to be wrong. So that's why I call it the hot hand fallacy fallacy.
0: And I think this is an, another example of... Of reason or rationality being a more open space than people assume it to be, right? Because reason is not just always siding with the, the person who's showing stats and debunking something intuitive. Reason can just as often side with intuition when, when it's applied to some observation that turns out not to be as rational as it seemed. And the whole time you're using reason, right? You're using reason to get to, you're using reason on, on, at some level on the initial intuition, you're using reason on the thing that debunks the intuition. You're using reason to debunk the debunking. And so reasoning is this, this process we engage in. It's, it's not, as I said, it's not, you just feed Spock the question and he tells you, he gives you the Wikipedia page for the, for the gambler's fallacy or something, right? It's, it's a much more open and creative space than it than it's assumed to be.
1: I think that, that's exactly right. And so <clears throat> it would be a mistake to say, ha, Gilovich and Tversky thought they were being rational, but they weren't. Therefore, you know, <clears throat> what's the big deal with rationality? It's you're using an even more subtle form of rationality. And there were a couple of statisticians who kind of dug a little bit deeper, who exposed the hot hand fallacy fallacy, but they were, you know, applying rationality to an attempt to be rational. And Which brings a a key point that's somewhat related, which is even though rationality is an ought to be an aspiration, none of us ever knows when we actually have it. The same thing with objective truth. And some of the the backlash, the recoil to the insistence on objectivity, truth, rationality is, who the hell are you to to say that you're the rational one or that you've got a, a monopoly on the truth? And the answer is, you don't. No one ever does. You that the standards of rationality and truth are things that you always aspire to. But because we're not angels, we're not infallible, all of us might be wrong at any given moment, which is why uh, we need continuous re-examination of our assumptions, why we need to move to an issue that both of us are are concerned with, why you need free speech, because no arbiter has the truth and therefore can shut down debate and, and, and criminalize Incorrect opinions because we no one knows what the incorrect opinions are. That's exactly why we have open debate, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, and uh, other liberal values.
0: Yeah, there's. Uh, I've often thought about the paradox of any any person with a normal amount of humility is that you believe everything you believe, every belief you have, you think is true, or else it wouldn't be a belief. Just circularly, yet you must know that you're not the first person in the history of the human race to only have correct beliefs and no false <laughs> right. like Exactly. I know right. those, yes. Both of those things are true. And, and frankly, I know that I'm not even close. Like I, you know, I've met enough people that are way smarter than me to know that I'm not even close to having all correct beliefs to, to being the first person.
1: <laughs> yeah, me too. And, and all of us you know, sometimes there's a related <clears throat> paradox that's, that I, I've seen in the philosophy literature called the preface paradox. So, you know, when you open a book and you read the, the preface and the author always says, I thank so-and-so for his comments and so-and-so for her comments. Then at the end, he says, all remaining errors are, are my responsibility. <laughs> you might say, well, if you know your book has errors, why don't you fix them? <laughs> and yeah, the answer is, well, I know that book must have errors because, you know, all books have errors and, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not that much of a genius. I just don't know which ones they are.
0: Yeah, and I think the paradox is probably resolved by having some some kind of level of credence in everything you believe, some level of confidence. Right? There are some things I'm so confident in, just that you know I'm in this room right now. Something as simple as that, and my level of confidence in assertions about complex issues just goes progressively downward. I guess. Yeah,
1: <clears> that's right. Well, there's. I think that is indeed one of the implications that our our degrees of belief ought to be you know, graded or qualified, and they're never 1.0. And uh, we all have to submit ourselves to examination, criticism, debate, uh, simply because you know I'm not going to know what my flaws are. You know, someone else is going to have to probably going to have to point them out to me. Now, it's possible that a whole community can be deluded. We know that that happens, but still. Generally, a community of reasoners and debaters is likely to be more rational than any you know, one guy or one woman who is imposing their version of the truth. And it comes from an interesting feature of human reason, pointed out by uh, Dan Sperber and Hugo Mercier, which is often, even though people have, they, they really do have these blind spots and overconfidence and confirmation bias and all, all these flaws. So we often are, are pretty bad judges of our own beliefs, but we tend to be much better at criticizing other people's beliefs. So even though, you know, we, we we can find the flaw in someone else's argument, even though we kind of pass over it in our, in our own arguments. Now, that's, you know, human weakness, human shortcoming. But the bright spot is that if you put people together in communities where you're allowed to point out the flaws in someone else's line of reasoning and in a kind of marketplace of ideas, all of the different... People poking holes in one another's arguments, you can start to see which arguments tend to survive. That holds out the hope that the community can become rational, even though it's composed of individual reasoners who are not so rational.
0: So I want to circle back to the problem of conspiracy theories. Yeah. This is something I've talked about a few times, Michael Shermer and some other people. And It's the first observation is just that conspiracy theorists are often very smart and conspiracy theories often require a lot of intelligence to, you know, as, as pictures to paint, to, to connect all of the dots often requires a level of focus and intelligence and ingenuity that makes it clear the person who believes this is highly intelligent. And yet, you know, the, the conspiracies are, are, are just ridiculously unlikely. And, and yet, it's also true that conspiracies have happened. Many have been discovered, COINTELPRO usually being the first example people call to mind. That people conspire to do things and try not to get caught. And, and when they do, we have evidence that, well, people conspire to do things. So one thing that I've always been curious about is what is, it, what is so attractive about conspiracy theories? Because they're clearly doing something for the person that believes them uh, at a psychological level. And people vary in their propensity to be taken in by these theories. So what, what do you know about that question?
1: Yeah. So there's a, um, there's a grain of rationality in conspiracy theories and that conspiracies are possible. They're generally, something like there is a difference between the, the you know the Bay of Pigs, which really was a conspiracy by the CIA to invade Cuba, and something like the um, uh, chemtrail theory that jet contrails are actually mind-altering drugs dispersed by a secret government program to pacify the population. So, I mean, there are really there are degrees of uh, difference between the credibility or the uh, outlandishness of the, the real conspiracies they tend not to be as out there, as you know, the 9/11 truthers or the uh, you know the, the chemtrail theorists or the, the QAnon, but but there is a continuum, and our ancestors probably were vulnerable to conspiracies in the sense that tribal warfare before we had standing armies and states and and, and large-scale um, civilized societies were matters of ambush and um, pre-dawn raids, not uh, pitched battles. And people really were in danger of enemy village plotting in secret. So, there is, so I think there's a little bit of you know, sometimes motivated paranoia. That's maybe the germ, psychological germ of conspiracy theories. There's a second component, which is there's, there's certain ideas that just have built-in intrinsic qualities that make them uh, difficult to falsify, such as God works in mysterious ways, you know, I'm, I'm looking for evidence of God and I don't see it, the universe seems capricious. Well, who are you to understand the mind of God? That's a, a kind of self-contained belief that's resistant to falsification. Likewise, conspiracy theories, by their very nature, are hard to falsify if the lack of evidence for a conspiracy can be taken as proof of what a diabolical conspiracy it, it really is. The uh, Then there's also uh, another contributor, I think, is that often conspiracy theories are really morality tales. They're saying that some sect, some coalition, some tribe, some social entity is even more evil than you could imagine. Uh, that that the, there's a, the the CIA is so nefarious, or the, the Bush administration, that they could have had a controlled implosion of, of 9-11. That Hillary Clinton, she's the kind of person who really could run a pedophile ring of uh, uh, Satan-worshipping cannibals. And I Sometimes the degree of belief in the factuality of the conspiracy theory is is pretty shallow. It may not even be that people literally believe that it has taken place, but they just don't care. That is, the point of certain kinds of beliefs isn't their factual veracity, it's the moral that they deliver. And so saying that Hillary Clinton ran a pedophile ring is basically another way of saying, boo, Hillary, uh, or Hillary is so depraved that she might even be capable of that. Now, I think you or I would say, well, no, 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 you can't do that. It's one thing if you say boo Hillary, but you can't translate that emotion into a factual claim that she actually did something because it is incumbent on us to ground all of our factual claims on the degree of evidence, whether they actually happened or not. You can't just say it because you think she's capable of it, either she did it or she didn't. But that mindset, call it the reality mindset, is not the way that the human mind uh, naturally works. I think we bifurcate our belief system into a reality zone where we really are pretty rational. Uh, we have to be if we want to you know, hold a job and pay the bills and get the kids off to school and keep food in the fridge. Uh, you can't believe in too much woo-woo. Uh, if uh, you can't believe that that beer is going to magically appear in your fridge because you open your fridge and there won't be any beer, you really have to be grounded in reality. There's a whole other zone in which your beliefs, the, whether your beliefs are true or false, don't really matter, at least to you. You know, what, what's the, what was the origin of the universe? Was, was it God going shazam or was it a big bang? You know, what difference does it make to me? Uh, or uh, what actually goes on in the, the, the Oval Office of the White House when I'm not there and, and uh, can't, can't witness it? You know, can I ever know? And, and corporate boardrooms and, and why do uh, bad things happen to good people? these cosmic questions are ones where people are, I think, satisfied with mythological beliefs, with empowering, uplifting, mobilizing stories. And whether the stories actually took place or not is kind of seen as, as pedantic, as nitpicking. And I think that's why some of the more outlandish conspiracy theories can be kind of held by people who are otherwise rational. Namely, they're not subjecting them to the same scrutiny as they would their factual beliefs, they don 't feel they have to, and for many of our beliefs for most of our existence as a species that you couldn't find out anyway.
0: Yeah, I think so. I, I like this distinction between the reality mindset and mythology mindset, and a, an interesting example is astrology and just uh, the, the ubiquity at least in my generation of people having astrology apps on their phones to tell them you know what their day's going to be like and just the second question after what is your name nowadays, you know, to people in, in, in my generation is what's your sign? And
1: by the way, and that and was um, true in, in, in my generation. It was true. I was kind of holding out hopes that uh, that would kind of fade and that uh, the, the uh, you know, baby boomer woo-woo would be replaced by a more sensible uh, attitude. But um, I, I've actually plotted data on belief in astrology over time. And sad to say, it is pretty flat. I mean, there are ups and downs but but, but abs- absolutely it's kind of depressing how that ha- that still persists
0: right I, I used to have a policy earlier in in college when i was probably slightly more disagreeable <laughs> of just telling people my sign and then immediately telling them that i think astrology is bullshit as a uh, as a litmus test for whether we, we could like likely be friends or not but you know it, it's a which, which raises a question of if if someone is in a mythology mindset about something that's not practically important to your immediate life, as you say, whether it's the origins of the universe or something like that, or whether you're going to have a good day and a kind of loose sense that people believe astrology, is it, is it useful? Does it make sense to engage them on it from a, from a rational reality based point of view, or does it make sense to live and let live? And, you know, people are deciding this with their family members and friends all the time. Do I keep the peace? Do I try to engage in a rational discussion? What advice do you have people, for, for people in, in this scenario?
1: I think if there is some risk that the person is going to make a consequential decision and therefore kind of you know, blunder into some kind of disaster or even foolish outcome, and, and you know, depending on your social relationship with the person, it, it probably, it, uh, yeah, then it might be advisable. You, you would be doing them a favor. Now, you may not convince them, some people, it's not easy to disabuse people of some of their beliefs. But in that case, if they're really going to do something foolish on the basis of an astrological prediction, then uh, you know, I think it would be friendly advice, you know, well given and not to be well taken. In other cases, it could be anywhere from a waste of time to, to, to cruel. So I'll give you an example of a woman that I know who um, underwent a, a terrible tragedy. Her her sister was killed in a car crash. Her sister's grandchildren were killed in a car crash. So she just like I lost a lot of family members. And she said, well, my only consolation is that we'll all be reunited in heaven. Now, I'm not going to say, oh, well, you know, really consciousness is consistent brain activity. And when the brain is, is, goes, is, stops functioning, consciousness vanishes from the universe forever. So you're not going to meet them in heaven. You know, that would just be cruel, and and you shouldn't be cruel. And it also it has no consequences in the sense, or at least all the consequences would be negative. It would be you know, deepening her grief without any compensating um, benefit. So that would be a kind of a case where you really shouldn't try to spread that kind of, of rationality, um, only if it was really to head off some you know, disastrous decision where you think there's some probability that you might change their mind.
0: All right, well, we're we're at the end here. I guess I just want to leave my listeners thinking about the connection between rationality and moral progress before, before I let you go. Um, you've written a couple great books about moral progress, including The Decline of Violence and then Enlightenment Now, which is one of my favorite books. Just about the, the progress, the evidence for all the progress we've made in pretty much every domain we care about from health to wealth to violence to uh, human rights. And I think one of your arguments is that there's a direct connection between reason and all of the benefits of modernity. Like, you know, when, when most people who talk to their grandparents have an intuitive and basic sense that life now is better than it used to be. And many academics, as you know, will will challenge this. But for most people, it it does kind of gel with some of their intuitions. So just assuming you've persuaded someone of that, which is, of course, a big assumption, how do you persuade them that reason is a major source, uh, a major reason why all of of this progress has happened?
1: Well, it's... uh... In a way, it's not distinct from the incredulity that people have about the, 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 mere, the actual existence of progress, namely that our lives have gotten longer and safer and healthier and more peaceful and more um, respectful of, of uh, human rights. Because there is no force in the universe, no mystical you know, elevator that just carries us ever upward. And that was a kind of 19th century Victorian conception of progress. Progress is just built into the universe. Uh, and it really isn't. the universe doesn't care about us, and if anything, the universe tries to you know kind of squash us to the extent that we the only way that we could make progress is by at least material progress in terms of famine and poverty and natural disasters and uh, longevity is by figuring out how the world works, that is applying our our ingenuity, our rationality with the goal of making people better off and when when people have succeeded at that and we retain the improvements that work and try not to repeat our mistakes, that's what progress is. Uh, Now, somewhat of a surprise, and and I can't make as strong an argument for this, is that when it comes to moral progress, like the, um, the decriminalization of homosexuality, the movement toward peace, the equality of women, the abolition of slavery, the civil rights movement, There, I I was surprised to find that at the very outset of each one of those movements, there was a highly rational argument. Now, rational in the sense that uh, some philosopher or or theologian or activist pointed out that the practices of the day were inconsistent with other values or beliefs that people uh, claimed to hold. So it was exposing a, a contradiction. And Even for things where you wouldn't think that a rational argument would be called for, like, you know, why do you need an argument? Why uh, There might be something a wee bit wrong with burning heretics at the stake or keeping slaves. And it just seems like such a no-brainer. But of course, everyone did it at the time. And there really were uh, activists and thinkers and rhetoricians who, who made that argument. Now, the more effective ones combined some emotional appeal, empathy, with a rational argument, but they provided the rational argument. And just one of many examples would, was uh, was Frederick Douglass, perhaps the greatest orator in history. And he used kind of you know, searing imagery of the cruelties of slavery. But he was also a, a genius at undercutting every single argument at the time. And people made arguments at the time for slavery. And he just eviscerated them one after another. Said, well, you know, so, uh, are, are, are enslaved people like uh, you know, equivalent to, to livestock. Well, you don't have any laws that prevent livestock from learning to read, do you? But you do have laws preventing enslaved people from, from learning to read. Uh, you don't have capital punishment for, um, for for animals. You do for enslaved people. So you yourself have conceded that enslaved people are people uh, with a moral sense, with intellectual faculties and on and on. And he was just withering um, in not just the moral condemnation but exposing all of the contradictions in their world of view and that happened in, in many times with arg- arguments for what we now recognize as great movements for moral progress you know decriminalization of homosexuality jeremy bentham said well the only thing that makes something immoral is if uh, anyone suffers or anyone suffers harm and you have two uh, gay people um, engaging in, in sex in private No one's harmed. There's nothing but pleasure. Therefore, it can't be immoral. You know, things like that, which now almost strike us as too obvious to mention. That's because they won the day. Their argument persuaded people. And it's also a way that you can distinguish social justice movements that deserve our support from um, uh, mob justice movements, lynch mobs, and and other forms of madness of crowds. You can't just say if someone is passionate about some cause, that must show that they're right, because we know that there have been horrible popular movements that, that uh, arouse people's emotions that were, in, in retrospect, we realize, uh, horrific. And the difference between them is we can see why the arguments for the social justice movements that we ought to support really are convincing and the ones for the, uh, the, the lynch
0: mobs were not. Yeah. So that's a great note to leave on. Stephen Pinker, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Coleman. It's an honor to be on your uh, conversations.
0: If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.